back again. Episode 39. Maybe we'll have to do something special for the big 4-0. Well, actually, we do. We've got Jenny Dobson coming in. That's pretty special. But this week, we have my buddy Richard Painter. Great dude. I always credit him with the guy who uh, taught me how to be a real seller hand. Just a real nuts and bolts winemaker and also just a cool dude with a great background. And we share a little bit of a... Uh, we always talk music. He's another one, a guy we talk music. I think we are similar ages and grew up when certain stuff was popular around the same time. So, yeah, we, we tend to get on and do that. I'm fighting off a cold now, but I'm still, you know, out there doing this podcast for the people, you know. But it sounded a bit, bit stuffy to you guys. I apologize and scratchy if I start coughing hysterically. My apologies. Honey and lemon, that's the way to go. Anyway, this week, of course, once again, the podcast is sponsored by the Giblet Gravels. Go to gibletgravels.com, click on terroir, then click on, and read first read all about what the Giblet Gravels are. Even if this you're listening to this two, three years from now, you'll still be able to go to that website. There'll be a new annual vintage selection up. But right now, if you're listening to this, in 2017, they have the 2015 annual vintage selection out which is a group of wines uh, i think it's half a dozen each of red blend and syrah uh, really tough for you to try to find this these wines all in one package so a real special thing that normally they just send out to press and media all over the world but uh, you can buy it too so check that out um yeah today we're talking to richard painter he's the chief winemaker at tiawa it's actually the first winery i ever worked at in New Zealand, but uh, that's not where we work together. He was also the cellar foreman and then assistant winemaker at Vital Estate, uh, a very historic winery in the central Hastings district. Um, and just a, yeah, like I said, a real solid dude in the, a little bit before. And uh, one thing that we talked about that was really interesting, uh, besides the Gibbet Gravels and Tiawa and things like that, was his history in. Uh, overseas in Washington State, which I thought was very interesting. But yeah, check it out. One more sponsor we always got to mention, Decibel Wines, decibelwines.com. Go to the store and put in the promo code DBPODCAST and you will get 10% off your first order. Got some new wines up there, some exciting new releases shipping to the States, to Australia, to the UK, and of course all over New Zealand, free shipping for wine members. We're about to launch a new wine club. So we'll probably hear more about that in the coming weeks, but it's, it's going to be pretty cool. We're really going to be putting together some interesting little packages for New Zealand and some sort of twice a year cases for the U.S. So anyway, uh, let's listen to Rich. You don't want to listen to me in my cold anymore. Cheers. So we're live, Rich. I was just thinking when we were walking up the stairs, 
I've had some firsts uh, in the last, uh, including Gordon recently. This is my first, second time podcast. You're my first part of a couple podcast. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> but I'll, uh, you know, we won't pull the curtain back too much and we'll let people do some research and figure out, uh, you know, who who your partner is. And, and I'll just even say partner. I'll leave it at that. It's a fluid <laughs> world these days. It is you know? fluid. <laughs> yes. So uh, how's it going, man? Yeah, good. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah. They, uh, you got a lot going on up the road. There's, it seems like it's all happening. I was there with my cousins yesterday and quite a bit of construction going on behind Tiawa. So it must be pretty exciting. Like, uh, I'm sure you saw that coming, you know, down the road when you, uh, However, he ended up at Tiawa, which we can get to in a second, but it must have been like you knew down the road there was going to be some big things happening down there. So that's got to be an exciting time for you, man. Yeah, it is. It's great. And it's, um, I think it's very positive for Hawke's Bay. You know, Hawke's Bay wines are all in good growth and the world's sitting up and taking notice. And unfortunately, the current winery at Tiawa is just far too small for mm. our current needs. So, um, yep, we're building a new winery and we're going to be able to really ramp up our production with a real Hawke's Bay focus. So it's and because, because you've been there without getting into the, all the politics and everything, because you've been at Tiawa now for, was it three years or four years? Uh, yeah, this is my fourth vintage. Yeah. Um, are you going to, do you find yourself in a bit of a hub as like between a bunch of different winemakers already, or is that the way it's been going? Uh, or do you see that changing more? I know between the group of Ville Maria, you're going to have people making their own wines, obviously, yeah. but you're kind of the guy who's been on site already for yeah, yeah. four years. So, Yeah, I think, um, yeah, so we're part of the Villa Maria group and we've got, you know, Vital-esque Villa Maria uh, wineries in our stable. Um, and to be honest, we all work together quite closely as it is, albeit we've had separate wineries. Mm. Um, but we have had three separate wineries or four if you include our Auckland winery um, yeah. that are all actually too small for what we need um, and ageing so, um, so we really need a sort of new state of the art facility and we'll all work together in one roof but um, other than that everything will stay the same all the winemakers and vineyards will stay the same. I swore when we got a tour or something I did a tour through the Marlborough facility years ago with my parents maybe in 2010 and I think they told us they built it so that they could keep expanding it because they knew yeah. they would like they built the walls like yeah and they just keep expanding the pad and they were actually laying down more concrete when we were there yeah but they've outgrown that now yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh good good old george he's doing it you know that's good news um but uh yeah so you've the other thing that's been really cool you mentioned that it's good for hawks bay we were just discussing that um you know that tiawa and that restaurant and that place uh, it's so great, you know, it's right across from Trinity Hill and it's just kind of like a really cool spot to go and taste wine and just hang out and two great producers right across the street from each other, literally across the street. And uh, I just think it's really great for Hawks Bay uh, that you're there and sort of, yeah, after uh, totally dark days, but some transition years mm -hmm. there, if you will. Uh, you still have the same cat, which I saw. Yeah, cool. Roger's still there, going strong. She's about eighteen years old. Yeah, it's amazing. Just she's, a, she's the longest uh, longest term um, employee. At yeah. Tiawa, <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's uh, you know, and you've been able to take over the reins of a pretty cool vineyard. So uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you today about is how some of the vines there are. Uh, you know, in relation to the Giblet Gravels, I think people don't even understand that we're talking about an Appalachian that isn't like, oh, it's from 
you know, this latitude, longitude, it's literally a soil. Um, and, you know, one producer, what, I mean, was a third of you is on the gravels and maybe two thirds not or something? Uh, it's probably around the other way. Yeah, two thirds of our vineyard is on the gravels. Uh, and then a third is uh, on bridge par triangle type soil where there's silt overlying um, the, the gravel. Uh, the gravel's still there. It's just about a meter, a meter and a half yeah, deeper. 10,000 years deeper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, Gimlet Gravels is unique in that it's the only appellation in the world. Um, based purely on soil type, not on on geographical or so political boundaries. Um, yeah. So Tiawa sits right on where that soil type changes. So it's, it basically slices right through where our current winery is. So when you're sitting in the winery, you're sitting right on the boundary of mm. the Gimlet Gravels. Oh, that's cool. And do you have any um, varietals that are kind of on both there, that like Merlot or something? That's uh... yeah, Chardonnay is probably the main one. Um, so our Tiawa single state Chardonnay is grown on a mix of Gimlet gravels and Bridge Par type soils, and I think that's one variety where it works really well. I don't think one particular soil type is necessarily better for Chardonnay. I think no, they yeah. both work really well. You get lovely sort of tightness and minerality from the Gimlet gravels side and. The bridge part triangle soil adds a bit of weight and richness to yeah. the Chardonnay, I think. So that's yeah. the main one we grow on both. Um, and we grow some Merlot on the bridge part triangle side of the vineyard as well. Um, and the, the Merlot does really well there. That tends to go into our left field range. Mm. Um, whereas the, the Gimlet Gravels side, we, we sort of preserve for our Tiawa single estate range. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. The um, Backing up a bit, though, I was just thinking... Uh, I, you know, we're mates, we're friends. I know a little bit about your history, Lincoln, right? Did you yep. get Lincoln? Yep. But let's go back to when, when wine, when did it start to be like, oh, I think I want to do this, you know, and where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up in Rotorua, um, not really a wine growing region, but, uh, my parents, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, when you're down in the city, it doesn't smell so good, but out in, out in the hills and around the lakes, sure, it's, sure. Uh, it's a great place. <laughs> Uh, maybe that's why I'm not so uh, not so. Um, that's why I'm quite tolerant of sulfides. Maybe yeah, put it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not so sensitive it. to them in wine. Um, but my parents always drank wine. Um, they were involved with sort of wine and food societies in Rotorua, and my my father's always had a small cellar. So um, I certainly grew up, you know, um, having a small glass of wine at the table around dinner. So mm. I grew up around wine. Um, and I, I even remember as a kid, my father's from Hawke's Bay, and I remember being a kid and being dragged around tasting rooms around Hawke's Bay as they, they went around tasting wine. So, um, yeah, I even vividly remember being in the old vital tasting room, actually, and the lady giving me a smell of the wine as a kid. Mm. And, you know, and, and Just a smell. Just a smell. <laughs> and then I ended up working there sort of 20 years later. But... Um, yeah, so I always grew up around wine. Uh, I went to Otago and studied geography, though. Um, partly it was the subject I most enjoyed at school. Um, so it was physical geography, doing the science side of things. I think it's a good uh, thing to do. It's kind of what I ended up doing. I went into business, and I was like, this is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I ended up studying political science. It's like, if you're going to be spending a lot of time studying something, you should like it, you know? Yeah. So and I'm, at the end of the day, you end up using it. Yeah. And some, you know, your sort of bachelor degree in one way or another is just a foundation for, you know, so geography, sure. In the wine yeah. industry, why not? You know? Well, it's all um, studying soil science, um, hydrology, you know, the way water moves through soil. Um, 
the formation of land through river, glaciers, that sort of thing. And then mm. you've got the whole climatology side of it. You know, that's what I studied. And, um, yeah, it sort of wasn't until down the track I realised, you know, I mean, wine is almost liquid geography, yeah. I think. You know, it's really a reflection of the soil and the climate and things like that. Mm. So it's kind of a practical application of some of those things. Definitely. You learn, so. And then... Um after so that was like a where was that school so that was at otago, otago so dunedin so yeah. great great uni town um and i ended up i yeah to be fair i didn't really know what i wanted to do with geography um, and a lot of people went into sort of bureaucratic type roles working for councils doing yeah. that side of things which which wasn't really my cup of tea or they went down a more research side of things um but i i actually was while I was studying, I was working in a bar called Bath Street. It was a bit of a legendary nightclub in Dunedin back in the late 90s and 2000s. This is um, where my familiarity picks up. <laughs> for some um, stories. Yeah, we didn't sell much wine in the bar, to be fair. we The bar <laughs> opened at 10 at night and yeah. closed at about 6 in the morning, so it wasn't much of a wine bar. But uh, the owner loved wine, and we used to actually go to a lot of wine tastings and things at the local wine store. And, um, and that's where I really picked up on... Well, you would have time. You could go at six. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, I'd go to wine tasting and then I'd go to work <laughs> afterwards. Um, but just listening to winemakers talk about wines and how they develop, and then I found, um, you know, I had a real affinity for tasting wine and trying to work out where it's from and the flavours and that sort of thing. Um, and I decided I needed a bit of a healthier lifestyle than working all night and sleeping all day. So um, mm. with a science degree, I was able to do a postgraduate diploma at Lincoln, which is a one-year course. Um, so I sort of threw in the job and, um, yeah, went up to uh, Central Otago to spend a summer working in the vines just to get a bit of background before I started at Lincoln. Where was that um, at? Uh, that was working for Gibson Valley oh, yeah. uh, Winery. Yeah. Good producer. Um, yeah. So I spent a, a summer down there living in Queenstown and working in the vineyards before I started studying wine. So that was great. And what's the surrounding Lincoln area? You know, it's, I know it's not quite EIT where you have just Hawke's Bay just, yeah. just engrossed, but uh, is it? Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing you have a school vineyard, but then there's some producers around as well. Yeah, so it's just, just to the south of Christchurch. It's about 20 minutes out of Christchurch on the Canterbury Plains. Um, there are a few vineyards in that area, but it's probably not um, so known for, for growing grapes. Um, although I did find some people who had a vineyard just near Lincoln, and I ended up working for them in the weekends. So I was actually able to um, work on a vineyard while I was studying, which was great for me. Um, there is Wiperas, probably the most well-known region, but that is about an hour north of Yeah, it's more of, north, right. Uh, yeah. Christchurch, but yeah, yeah there, are, there are a smattering of vineyards around that Lincoln area. It's pretty, it's a little wetter and cooler down there? Um, probably cooler. It's actually quite dry. Yeah. Um, you get these sort of big nor'westers blow through and it's very dry, but it's it's pretty marginal in terms of warmth yeah. for growing grapes. White, yeah. maybe a yeah. Pinot if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, cool, and then... You were so you so you went to Otago and you were working down there and then yeah and then what next? So Otago working down there went to oh Lincoln um, and then once I finished at Lincoln I actually moved up to Nelson to work for Noodle Vineyards oh, uh, so I worked there for a year which was it was a great place to work I spent probably eighty percent of my time in the vineyards so learned everything um, about canopy management, you know, driving tractors, spraying mine, all that sort of thing. Um, and then on other days I'd end up working in the cellar door or packing up wine orders or washing barrels in the winery. So it was a, a great place to work yeah, and a great family be. to work for. Yeah, I was yeah. at Pino 17 this year and um, one of the opening ceremonies, I 
got a phone. I knew a phone call could be coming, so I was like, everybody's kind of shuffling in, and I went out in the street and took this call. Then it was closed, and I didn't really feel like going in. I knew it was just kind of opening mm-hmm. hoopla for the press and everything. And I was sitting out in the lobby, and just some some bloke rolls in, clearly just off a flight and getting out of a taxi cab. And I started talking to him, and and it was uh, Mr. Finn. What's oh, his yeah. Tim. Tim. Yeah. Yeah. I almost said Jim. And just the like, nicest guy. And I was like talking to him for about 20 minutes. And I was like, oh, you know, oh, you're like a legend. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. like one of the greatest, you know, yeah. producers in New Zealand. You know, it's nice to meet you. You yeah. know, it's all oh, thanks a lot. You know, and obviously Judy, she's got a real presence as well. Yeah, they're great. I mean, yeah. Tim, he's he's got a background in sort of more agricultural science. So he approached things with a real scientific view. Yeah, and he seemed Judy's really smart, got a real um, smart head for the business side of it and crea- creativity and marketing and that yeah, sort of totally. thing. Yeah, so totally. Great people to work for and a great place to work straight out of uni, you know. And yeah, sort of formative it all. Years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it can go terribly wrong if you work for the wrong people, too. Yeah. Uh, so you were there for about a year, is that what you said? Yeah, so I was there for a year out of uni, or maybe about 10 months. Um, then after that, so, you know, like a lot of uni students sort of had the Pinot bug and thought, oh, wow, Pinot's you know, the greatest variety and wanted to make more Pinot. So I worked with a guy at Newdorf um, who worked for a company called Owen Rowe, um, based in Oregon mm-hmm. in the Willamette Valley. Um, so we, I teed up a job there. Um, so I went over to work at Vintage in Oregon, um, and I was sort of heading over, and they said, oh, well, actually, we've got this new facility in Washington. Do you want to head up there and um, do some work? So I thought, like, yeah, sure. Didn't And at the time, I knew nothing about Washington or Washington yeah. wine. So it would be um, like Syrah and Yeah, Cabernet. and then um, you start working, and all this amazing Syrah and Cabernet starts coming in and across the sorting table, and you think, God, this this is beautiful fruit. Yeah, it's know? weird. Um, it's, people realize it. There's still really great value too. Like, yeah, you start getting up there with some of the Oregon Pinots. Yeah. I mean, they're awesome. I really think they're um, as far as a region miles away from most places in California, and they're probably compared to Martinboro and Burgundy. I always think they're like the trifecta. Yeah, well, I'm it. But uh, Washington's still kind of like a secret. You know, it's still not huge, and yeah. even in the U.S., you know, I mean, there it is, and you know, people know about it and everything. Yeah. But it's whew, there's some. It's like the darkness comes out of there. Those wines, they get like really dark. I don't know if... The, yeah, I actually I haven't done like a wine tour through there. Are they are There's like elevation or what, what's the, the thing there? Yeah. yeah, so it's all grown. I mean, it's kind of odd um, if you think about it from a New Zealand perspective and that the further south you go, the colder it gets. You know, and Washington sits above Oregon in terms of latitude. So you sort of think it's going to be colder than Oregon. Mm. But actually the grapes are grown on the inland side of the Cascade Range. So um, any moisture is caught on the seaward side of the Cascade Range, think where Seattle was, you know, there. Mm. And then you're in a real rain shadow, more continental-type climate, a little bit like Central Otago, but warmer, um, up in Washington. So it's quite dry. You get lovely settled weather. Um, Like the weather was just so settled. I remember once the vintage was over, um, one of the guys I was working with said, oh, it's going to snow this weekend. And the weather was just absolutely beautiful. And I said, what are you talking about? It's not going to snow this weekend. <laughs> and sure enough, like just about at the time he said, it just started snowing. Like that's how dependable the weather was. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're, they're not so uh, – and there are different parts of Washington. Like there's the Columbia Valley, which is a bit cooler. They get a lot of cool airflow down there and they, they make great Riesling and things like that. Yeah. I've heard that. Uh, but where, where I was in the Yakima Valley um, – 
yeah, just lovely, warm, dry, settled weather and absolutely beautiful Syrah and Cabernet Sauvignon. Like, yeah, great, it's crazy. Absolutely great. And like you say, it flies under the radar, but it's much better value than, than Napa, for example. Oh, yeah. A lot of those California companies <laughs> are starting to buy up land up yeah. there, to be honest. Yeah. yeah, I've heard that. There's a lot of them are, I get little wine business updates and I see different things happening, but I suppose it's like, same in France and other places, like places get too expensive and then they start going to Rhone and then they start going yeah. south, you know, and then just different places. So it's a lot of people drinking wine out there. Good yeah. for us, you know. Yeah. So just vintage there? Or did you hang around and get to travel a bit? Or? Um, yeah, vintage. It was quite a long vintage. It was about four months in the end, um, spending a little bit of time in Oregon as well. Um, my, all the people I worked with had basically relocated from Oregon. So Spent a lot of time down in Portland um, uh, cool on the city. days off, which is a cool city. Yeah. So, a um, little bit of traveling, but um, sort of went down to um, California and wanted to have a good look around Napa. So, spent a bit of time there and, and San Francisco and stuff before coming home. But yeah, it was a nice sort of four or five month spell, which yeah. was a good long, long spell. It's enough of America. It's <laughs> good. No, it's actually one of the greatest parts of the country. Like, Mara flew in to visit me in 2012 and uh you know she had never been to the states she'd grown up in Italy and you know we land in San Francisco and you know I take her from the airport across like Golden Gate through Sausalito yeah up through Marin County you know and she's just like this place is beautiful it reminds me of Italy and the rolling hills and the, the house on the hill and the vineyard you know and I'm like we're going to New Jersey next week. It's going <laughs> to be a lot different. So, you know, like uh, this is, yeah, it's such a beautiful part of the country. And I've driven up through Northern California all the way up into Oregon. And it's just more of the same and different, but just gorgeous landscapes and everything. So, yeah, I think if I were to tell somebody, you know, outside of going, if they wanted to go to a city, I'd say that's an amazing part of the country there. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot there. It's not like, you know, just wide open, you know, it's not Wyoming or something, you know, which is also beautiful, but it's pretty just big and open, you know. So, uh, and then back to New Zealand after that or? Yeah, so back to New Zealand, um, sort of, I went back to Canterbury and worked on the vineyard I worked at down there for the summer, just trying to work out what I was going to do. And then I, I sort of switched from wanting to pursue Pinot winemaking, you know, I really fell in love with Syrah and Cabernet mm. Sauvignon and that working over in Washington. So I decided to pursue that. And, you know, I'm looking into it, you know, it really looked like Hawke's Bay. And, and for me, I felt the Gimmick Gravels looked like, you know, the place to grow those varieties. So after a bit of research and, and applying for a few jobs, I got a job with Vital Estate here in Hawke's Bay. Um, so I came here to work at Vintage at Vital um, with a view to kicking on and going back to the Northern Hemisphere, the next Vintage. Um, I had a job offer to go back to, to the States to work, but I was also quite keen on working in Europe. Um, but then I sort of, after a few months at Vital, um, some of the staff left and I was offered a full-time job there, um, which can be quite hard to come by actually in, in the wine Very industry. Much so. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite easy to pick up Vintage jobs, but I decided to try and... Um, get a job, which was actually doing the lab work, which wasn't necessarily something I had done or was interested in doing, but I just really wanted to round out my experience from, you know, having worked in the vineyard and the winery to get a bit more of a lab focus going So what on. year was that? So that was 2008. Oh, so yeah, that was right when, right before I met you then. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, got a job at Vital, and then I've worked for effectively the same company ever since. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good company. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you're in good company there. So, uh, and that's when I met you um, as my seller master by that time. <laughs> Later in the year, I think you were working on the restaurant, weren't you? When I first that was the plan. There. You know, it's uh, funny you're at Tiawa now because originally I went to Tiawa and picked Tiawa, dare I say, over Craggy Range. But I just kind of had a better feel for me there. Than, yeah. Uh, obviously, Craggy's a beautiful, awesome place, but I, maybe I just felt like I could be more myself at Tiawa. Yeah. Uh, and I love the wines and uh, Jenny Dobson's wines at the time. I thought were great, and so I worked. The plan was work my way through the winery or the restaurant into the winery. Yeah. And then everything kind of started going pear-shaped at Tiawa. And then I decided to try the same thing at Vital. And then that's when, yeah, I saw these guys poking around. the. And I was in the restaurant and they were probably like, who's this old guy working in the restaurant? <laughs> He's not like, because it's all kids and then the manager, which yeah. unfortunately is the way it is in a lot of yeah. hospitality. It's gotten a lot better in the you know my nine and a half years in New Zealand, I've noticed. Um you know, there's more people, you know, doing it as a full-time job and yeah. uh, there's just more restaurants in Hawke's Bay, you know, obviously Auckland and Wellington scenes as well. So it was, but I was, you know, I had, a, I, could, I knew I could always work in a restaurant and uh, he had to kind of let people listen and know what was happening. There was just this awesome winery. I'm tasting all the wines coming out of there and poking my head in the back. And uh, it was you and Pat, who's now up at uh, Mudbrick, who's been on the, um, podcast before and uh yeah you guys were nice enough to throw me a few tastings and wine and uh, we just kind of became mates and then eventually i was in the winery with you guys and that was a good team yeah that was a really good i'm sure it's good now but i and i've worked at other wineries since but i really learned how to work be a seller hand under you guys and uh but you know they kind of had a a pretty good threesome between you who and pat it was pretty serious lineup there yeah good, knowledgeable, hardworking guys to work for. Um, And that's kind of what I liked about it was you were all different, but you all brought something else to the table and we're all really good at what you did. So that was a great vintage. Oh, nine. Yeah. I know. I was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's funny. I've learned that was one of the first times I, cause Oh eight, I just had my head up my ass. (laughs) Uh, cause I did work at, uh, at Tiawa in the winery there, but it was all crazy. But Oh nine was probably the first year I started getting my head around, like oh, okay, this is the weather here because mm. I didn't. It was raining a little bit in March, and I was like, oh, what's this mean? This is terrible, you know. And then obviously it turned out to be just like epically hot, and yeah. you know that was probably one of the first. I just I'll never forget during that time realizing like it hasn't rained in like six weeks or something crazy, you know. And yeah. you're just so caught up in your life, mm. you know, living in Hastings and going to the winery every day that. Um, you realize why we can grow such great reds here in Hawke's Bay. Um, unfortunately, not every year is like that, but yeah. <laughs> uh, that was a pretty good, intense year, digging out some big tanks with you guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Vital, uh, they've got a mix around, right? So they get a lot off the gravels, obviously, but then some other places too. Yeah, so a lot of um, reds in particular off the gravels. Uh, a little bit of Chardonnay, but the Chardonnay tends to come more from Ohiti, um, and the Kelton Vineyard, which is not too far from where we're sitting. We've so, but the Ohiti's just over that but hill. Ohiti's actually up on the opposite side of the river. Yeah, so as I think you can lines, see it from right on top of that yeah, hill. Yeah, they're really not too far away. So, sort of cooler, slightly inland sites. I think really good for Chardonnay. Yeah, um, and then they do uh, get a few reds off Bridge Park Triangle as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. 
Where's those vineyards at? Uh, mainly Merlot um, off contract growers, um, yeah. sort of not far from here. Yeah. A few different ones. Yeah. There's a lot of vineyards back there. The yeah. triangle's huge. That's the one thing that, um, you know, we forget is how yeah. actually how big it is. It's a giant. Yeah, it's a big area. Big area. Um, so, yeah, sort of dream come true then to get started working with Gibbler Gravel's fruit uh, every year. And yeah, so it came and, uh, yeah, so I, was, I sort of started off, as I said, to work vintage as a cellar hand. Then I took over the lab role there. Um, then the cellar master left, and so then I transferred to the cellar master. But as you said, the sort of Pat and I, and we actually did everything. So yeah. even though assistant winemaker, cellar supervisor, lab, cellar work, you know, between yeah. the two of us, we did everything for about a year. Um, so it was great. I mean, Vitals, you know what it's like. It's quite an old winery. Um, a lot of things just don't make sense in it because it's sort of... Been built up over the years. Built up over the years, and it's a real rabbit warren, so it teaches you to be pretty resourceful, um, yeah. you know, and, you, and it's quite hard physical work. Um you know, no forklift racks for barrels or anything like that. But it's got to be a percentage um, of <coughs> Hawks Bay winemakers who have worked at Vital. Yeah, I think most people have at yeah, some point. One, their, at least one career. vintage over the years, and it's more than I realize. People, some people are older than you realize, and they're yeah. like, "Yeah, I worked back there in '04 and stuff." And, um, but yeah, and then <clears throat> so sometime after that, when did Tiawa get purchased by Villa Maria? Uh, so Sir George bought Tiawa in 2012. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd been working at Vital. Yeah. Um, so I worked my way up to assistant winemaker, um, and spent a few years as assistant winemaker there. Uh, George bought Tiara in two thousand and twelve, um, and the existing team sort of managed the two thousand thirteen vintage, um, and then uh, the winemaker left in about August two thousand thirteen, um, and so George still hadn't really worked out where he wanted to take the Tiara brands. Um, so for two vintages, I actually stayed at Vital, uh, but also took over the winemaking reins at, at Tiawa, um, sort of overseeing everything that was happening there for the 14 and 15 vintage. So for two years, I actually worked two jobs. Yeah, I, I lived on Nataro Road and would see you just <laughs> racing back and <laughs> yeah, forth yeah, and yeah. just wave out my window to you. I'm like, there he goes, back and forth. <laughs> yeah, it was a few long days over vintage, but nah, it was a good learning curve for me and uh, yeah, first, first, so 14 and 15 of the first years were, you know, sort of full creative control over the wines at Tiawa. Um, so that was a great, great experience for me. Good vintages too. To yeah, especially 14 around. was a bit of a dream vintage actually. Yeah, so, awesome. uh, and then, of course, we had all the 2013 wines in barrel too, which were outstanding. So I was pretty lucky to, you know. Take over it. You didn't have to take over 11 and 12. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of of funny how that all worked out and that you got some good vintages there that's um what's the you know for folks that don't know tiawa you know traditionally what they've done and then obviously villa has brought in some other fruit that you guys work with their other varietals so um yeah what's going on there? yes yeah, so, i mean traditionally i think tiawa all the wines were all made from grapes grown on the estate um, to the point where when they built the winery in the late 90s, the council actually said you're only allowed to process grapes growing on this vineyard. You're not allowed to truck grapes in from elsewhere. Oh, really? Which beggars belief. I don't really know why you'd say that. But the winery was only – so the winery was only built to handle maybe three or 400 tonne max, yeah. um, uh, which is part of that, that limitation that we've got now, to be honest. But – 
Um, so we still, um, we've got a couple of ranges. So we've got the Liftfield wines. So the idea behind Liftfield, the origins of Liftfield is that the um, they took grapes from that bridge par triangle side of the vineyard because they couldn't be labelled as gimmick gravels wines. They needed somewhere to put them. So mm. they called them the left field because mm-hmm. it's literally the left side of the vineyard. Yep. So that's how left field wines started. Um, and then they had their Tiawa wines, which came off the gimmick gravel side of the vineyard, and they could be labelled as gimmick gravel. So that's sort of how those two Just ranges... Just made it easy, yeah. Yeah, came about. So... Um, under the previous ownership, Julian Robertson, who owns the farm at Cape Kidnappers, they then introduced the Kidnapper Cliffs range, which is like a prestige range. Still grown on the Tiawa vineyard, but just out of exceptional parcels and, and great vintages sort of thing. So that mm-hmm. came on sort of um, around about 2009, 2010, that, that came apart. So those are our three ranges. Um, so the way we operate now is left field is by far and away the, where the bulk of our volume comes from, and it's far more than we could take just off Tiawa. Um, and it's got a bit more of a focus on aromatic whites as well and rosé, which aren't necessarily um, what the Tiawa vineyard's going to produce the best. So, yeah, 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 sure. so we take grapes for that from around the country. Um, so we do a Nelson Sauvignon Blanc, um, Marlborough Pinot, um, and then we do do quite a lot of Hawke's Bay wines. So Pinot Gris, um, again, a variety that doesn't grow right. so well on the Tiawa vineyard, but we grow that in Ohiti Valley where it's a bit cooler. Um, then we've got wines like Chardonnay, Merlot, Syrah, um, which do perform really well on the Tiawa Vineyard. So m- most of the, the grapes that go into those wines do come from the Tiawa Vineyard. Is it Albarino as well? In yeah, and then we do an Albarino, which is pretty exciting. Um, we actually get that from Gisborne. So we work with some uh, growers in Gisborne, and it seems to work really well up there. Do you get um, to go up to Gisborne? Yeah, I, I try and get up there once or twice a year just to check on the grapes. Um, yeah. One of my colleagues is up there just about every week over vintage. So sort of while I'm busy in the winery, he, he goes and checks out the grapes. But. Yeah, it's I, I, I love Gisborne. It's nice. You know, mm. it's just a little bit like uh, – I felt like right when I got to New Zealand in 08, which I think has something to do with Kim Crawford and whatever else was going on, and it kind of hit some sleepy times up there, yeah. you know, some big Montana or somebody like that kind of pulled out, and it's they've just had all, a lot of – but, you know, it's gorgeous weather. There's no reason why you can't grow nice grapes up there. Obviously, Milton and, you know, there's yeah. a couple other producers that make great wines. But it was always seemed like it was a big grower area, right? It's not like yeah, a heck a, of a lot of it's brands. it's a beautiful but. place. But it, it did have, it was tilted to quite big commercial growers growing commercial volumes of wine for brands like Lindauer and things like that where they could grow big volumes and quality wasn't such an issue. Um, mm. So, And you're right, a lot of big companies pulled out of Gisborne and left a lot of growers sort of in the lurch. Yeah. Um, but George, he's got a lot of belief in Gisborne. We still, as a company, we still pull 2,000 tonnes of fruit a year oh, out really? there, yeah. um, mainly Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, and increasingly Albarino. Um, yeah. Perhaps one of its weaknesses has been the propensity for it to rain up there. At <laughs> the worst time. Um, and, and that's why Albarino actually grows really well up there because it's quite a hardy little grape. Um, where it grows in Spain, it actually rains a lot. It's actually quite a coolish, wet area. Yeah. Um, and so the grapes evolved to be really resistant to disease. Um, and so it just doesn't rot. It's an amazing little grape. It's hardy. Thick um, skins. Thick skins, yep. Small berries, nice open bunches. Great acid. Um, yeah, yeah, great acid, great sugar. So it's a great little grape. Something we're really excited about. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that wine. It's nice to have a little something different too. But yeah, I guess Gizzy Chardonnay is 
where it sort of was traditionally, right? Yeah. And they kind of do a little bit of a fatter style. Yeah, it's got a rich, full-bodied Chardonnay. It tends to be more in that tropical sort of peachy spectrum. Um, But, yeah, with a bit of attention to detail in the the vineyard, there's no reason. still can't produce great wine. Yeah, Uh, sure. Villa Maria do one called the Reserve Barrique Chardonnay, and it's made in that big, rich style. And it's actually their first Chardonnay to sell out every year. Yeah. Yeah. People like that style, you know. Not everybody, but the people that like it, <laughs> yeah. they love it. You know? yeah, and I don't mind one of those sometimes, you know. It's good to mix it up. Um, yeah, and then so then the Tiawa range is um, something that is still all off the ground. Yeah, so that's all. Uh, we call it our single estate range because it's all grown on Tiawa Vineyard. Um, so the in that range, we do a Chardonnay, Syrah, a Merlot Cabernet blend, and actually a little bit of Tempranillo, which is, again, something new we're playing around with. Um, so the Chardonnay is off a mix of... Bridge Par and Gimmick Gravels soil, um, whereas the reds are all off the Gimmick Gravels soil, so they're all labelled as Gimmick Gravels wines. Um, and do you see, you know, a heck of a lot of difference between what you used to work with from the gravels f- for the vital sites as opposed to what you work with at Tiawa? Like this, you know, like I kind of said, in a way to have my head on my ass. <laughs> I don't yeah, really yeah. remember the fruit that much. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, what part of the gravels that is, is it, there's a, you know, part where the river turned and then we're sort of silty or is it a little heavier? Is it bonier or, you know? Yeah. So there's, um, I was surprised at how much difference there was actually, because some of the fruit I was working with at Vital was literally only 500 meters down the road. So I thought it would be quite similar, but Tiara is right sort of on the edge of where the river ran. So the river actually ran on our Northern boundary. So on our northern boundary, it's incredibly stony. And then it moves into a bit more sandy silt phase, um, even though it's still gimmick gravel. So we've we've probably got a higher percentage of silt in our gravel than than the other Villa Maria vineyards. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing um, that's quite interesting, there was a river, an offshoot called Tiawa or Tiatua that did run back across the Tiawa vineyard. So that there is quite a lot of stones from that reaching quite far back, oh, okay. uh, and that actually ran all the way through to Bridge Par. So it's quite an interesting story. So that's how the place got its name. That river was called Tiawa or Tiatua. Yeah. Um, but the biggest difference for me is the Tiawa vineyard seems to produce uh, slightly lighter, more elegant styled wines. They're not big tannic beasts. Um, and that took me a year or two to get my head around. I sort of thought, oh, these wines, they're a little bit lighter. They're not as, as concentrated. Um, but but I after a while, I sort of learned to just embrace they almost had a feminine quality, like yeah. they're quite perfumed and elegant, just really supple tannin. And now I, that's what I love about the Tiawa vineyard. You know, I taste the wines and I just think they look great. So um, certainly, and the other thing is we do lose the sun. Being under the shadow of Roy's Hill, we lose the sun just a touch earlier than further down the road, which I initially I didn't think it would have an impact. But the more I think about it, the more I think it does just have a slight impact in the season. Um, it's probably, a, it's certainly we... You know, and the, like the summer we just had, mm. uh, it wasn't the greatest end of the summer. Yeah. But uh, you know, there would have been days you would have been happy to get, um, you know, a bit of shade just yeah. to get a, you know, the, a bit of a break at the end of the day because yeah. it was just blazing hot. Um, and also, I was just thinking what what Ollie said to me, uh, which is the podcast I just released today, uh, that Ollie was saying something I, I just absolutely knew because I worked at Unison on those vines for three years, but probably just didn't consider it as much again until he mentioned that, you know, there's the lighter canopy 
of these vines on the gravels, there's like speckled light through more than you would say in other regions, even in Hawke's Bay. And with um, that being so important because we ripen by UV quite a bit here in, in yeah. New Zealand and that, you know, there's is that much more going on. Um, you know, yes, you might be losing, um, you know, canopy and, and energy through that, but you're actually gaining so much sunlight that you don't see on other vineyards. And it's just because there are these, you know, bony, bony soils that don't produce like, you know, heavy, heavy canopies. So, um, a bit of shade might help in certain yeah. days, you know? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. You, no, you're right. There's a lot less canopy, um, on the Kimlet gravels and, and that's one of the advantages of growing there. You know, you're not having to go through and strip loads of leaves and shoots off to open up the fruit, you know, it sort of happens mm. naturally. So it's definitely one of the advantages, um, considering we're still a pretty cool climate, region for growing these varieties so we need you know all that little bit of help we can get extra light and, and heat yeah it is about that that fine line you know it's because we've even had years I'll, I'll never forget one experience i had at, at vital was um i absolutely loved the 05 and 06 Shiraz when i started mm. working there it was like you know sort of a big it was one of those wine moments i won't forget was drinking those well i mean it wasn't one moment because i got to drink them a lot yeah <laughs> working in the restaurant in the tasting room and i was pouring them like you know two days a week in the tasting room talking to people and i just and then uh because i didn't wasn't here in 2007 uh, everybody was talking about how great and intense the 07 vintage was and so i was getting excited oh well you know this is going to be even better and those wines now i really like but when they first came out I was like, wow, this is not the same, you know. Mm. It was a, a hot year, and uh, and then I went around and was tasting them as they came out in different, you know, the Syrahs particularly, they came out from different producers, and I was kind of getting the same feeling that maybe these were a little too ripe, mm. you know, or, or at least stylistically it's a bit of a blip mm. from uh, previous vintages, you know. I was drinking 02, 04, 05, stuff like that, and they were all just had that, that white pepper and, you know, really nice, like, kind of floral lift that we get here. Uh, while still being ripe and uh, I thought you know this almost reminded me of Shiraz a little mm. bit dare I say yeah. and then I started thinking uh, well this is 2007 Shiraz probably wasn't planted too widely until 2000 and 2000 this is the hottest vintage on record for Syrah probably yeah I think you're probably right it's all around those early 2000s I think was when a lot of the planting happened late late 90s early and 2000s I, and talking to growers and winemakers since then they said yeah we probably should have not got too excited and let it get up to 24 25 mm. or whatever it is and just done what we normally do because yeah. flavor was there and um you know it was quite good with Syrah to let those little dimples form yeah right at the end but i you know obviously i don't know what was picked when or anything and again since then the wines i think uh, i've done great in bottle and everything but uh it just I thought it was quite eye-opening to see like how young the industry is here that like, you know, that was the first hot, really hot vintage yeah. for Syrah they've ever had. And so it's like, yeah, well, we're all learning. Like, mm. But I think one of the really good things about uh, the industry here, and I just think New Zealand overall is we adapt really quick, yeah. you know, and we're not, we don't have a lot of uh, bureaucracy that holds us up to do it, but also just there's a, a great open-mindedness to everybody here to like, well, that happened, let's make sure that doesn't happen again, or, you know, not that that was a disaster or anything, but mm. we have had a few. <laughs> and like, you know, you look at the global financial crisis, I thought New Zealand came out of that pretty damn good. You yeah. know, everybody just, you know, worked hard and 
got through it and there was some, you know, adjustments made and yeah. companies sold and things like that. But, you know, the industry came out of that, you know, pretty strong, I think. Yeah. You know? So, uh, anyway, yeah, that's my little rant. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that started. No, you're right. And uh, I think you've highlighted one of the real strengths of the New Zealand wine industry is that, that sort of freedom we have, you know, we're not bound by bureaucracy in terms of what we can plant or what we can grow, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, like I recently saw an article about someone starting to grow Chardonnay in Bordeaux, for example, you know, which oh my is almost unheard of. But yeah. it's like, well, why not? If it goes really well there, you know, shouldn't you know Bordeaux's a big place? <laughs> yeah. And Hawke's Bay is the same. It's such a diverse range of terroir in Hawke's Bay. Like if we we're only allowed to plant a handful of varieties, you know, half our region would be cut off from being able to make fine wine. So that's crazy. Yeah. Um, that that freedom and that sort of. Um, lightness on, on our feet that we have is a real strength i think um that might be what that i don't know if you've read the lineup of the italian film festival coming through no I so not. there's a uh a movie called the barolo boys and it's about these guys who decided is i think it's three guys and that they decided they, they changed the industry there and you know had this belief um but i haven't seen it yet so i don't know but obviously that happened with the super tuscan as well mm. was people just kind of said well, why can't we plant Cabernet here and mm. these other varietals? And oh, you can't do. You're not going to get your DOCG. And I was like, well, fuck it, we don't need it. <laughs> you know, yeah. We'll just sell, make the wines hundred dollars, and mm. you know, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's it. Is it is quite good to have have the freedom? I mean, I certainly couldn't have came here, you know, moved to Bordeaux and do what I do, mm. you know, and mix and match and stuff. So, um, well, that's good, man. I mean, I think you know. Any shout-outs you want, you know, back to your old DJ days or anything like that? <laughs> no, no. wasn't that kind of DJ. Yeah, yeah. Actually, we did a few radio shows, but this takes me back to that. The, uh, um, the one thing I'll never forget was when you walked into the winery at, uh, at Vital, and I tend to, uh, I'm, I think I'm a positive guy, but I tend to listen to really depressing music a lot, you know? <laughs> and you came in the winery and you go, Dan... During vintage, nothing below 100 BPM. <laughs> it's like, okay, I got you, buddy. No problem. You know, yeah. put something on a little faster. It's yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> no, night shift's all about energy, I think. Yeah. You know, good good music. <laughs> yeah, you can fall asleep over a tank otherwise, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's pretty easy to get depressed on night shift, you know. Yeah. But uh, we had a good crew. That was a good time. Yeah, no, it was a good time back in 2009. And like I say, fantastic wines out of that vintage. But... Uh, yeah, it's kind of funny though. Sometimes I taste an eleven or twelve, and I'm like pretty proud of those wines, you know, because yeah, yeah. that was a struggle. <laughs> yeah, I um, think. Um, yeah, and that, that's the beauty of Hawke's Bay, our diversity. I think even on um, tough vintages, because we grow such a diverse range of wines, um, you, you can always make something good. Like, yeah. Um, Seventeen was a tricky vintage, but actually our Chardonnays look fantastic. Merlots look really good. Yeah. And, um, and um, I think the rosé we made in our left field range is actually the best one we've ever made. So everything's got a silver lining. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it'll be, it'll be all right, man. All right, well, thanks for doing this, man. Cool. And I really then. appreciate it. Great to talk to Rich, solid dude. 
you can probably sense in that interview why he and I get along well. He is a, a cool dude, man. Very laid back, has a, a really good outlook on things, and he's making some awesome wines. I highly suggest if you're in Hawks Bay to go to the Tiawa restaurant and tasting room. They are, you know, it's kind of one of the, it used to be a destination place and it's becoming that again now that Villa Maria has taken over and uh, the wines are great. The food is just ridiculous. Uh, they're doing some uh, building out there that are going to extend the kitchen and blah, blah, blah. But even before that, it's just a true winery restaurant experience. So if you're popping through, I always say Trinity Hill and Tiawa are the two best places for that you know, cellar door and winery experience. Uh, great wines, great people at both those places. So uh, check that out. Again, decibelwines.com. Go to the shop and use the promo code DB Podcast to get 10% off your first order. And I'll talk to you guys soon. Next week, Jenny Dobson. Carry on, Gibbert Gravels. A couple more of these, and then we'll move on to some other folks in Hawks Bay. Cheers. Mm-hmm.